Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. everybody from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, Hannah Beth Jackson, a.k.a. HBJ. She shook up the status quo during her 14 years in the state legislature, pressing for more diversity on corporate boards and winning job protections for workers who take unpaid parental and family leave. She's also helped pass one of the toughest equal pay laws in the nation, Definitely a huge champion for women in Sacramento and actually beyond. Yeah, we want to talk to her about that, the fight for gender and racial equality in the workplace, and relevant, especially this week, successfully pushing for new laws to tighten up inspection of oil pipelines off the coastline. We'll get to all that and more, Marisa. But first, boy, there's a lot going on, not just on the coast here, but on the coast in D.C., the other coast. Um, seems like the Democrats, the, I would say like the, the, the seas are parting with the debt limit uh, being addressed at least through December and the spending bill at least again uh, funded temporarily. Now they can work on infrastructure and this whatever trillion dollar economic package that the Democrats are working on. So it does seem like uh, at least now the focus is going to be I think where Democrats want it to be. Yeah. And I mean, I think we sort of predicted this a week ago, not to like Tudor on hearts. But, you know, it did seem like they were inching towards some resolution on this stuff. This debt agreement is obviously not going to last forever. It's just basically for a couple months. Um, and I think we'll have to see how, you know, how the responses in come, you know, late November. Are we talking about doing away with the debt limit? Is is Biden's agenda fully passed? Is the filibuster on the table? Like all TBD. But I Lots think... Lots of heavy lifts left. Yeah, I think this was... Um, a big kind of hurdle to pass, as, as you mentioned, for the president and for Democratic leadership. Uh, it does kind of take the gun away from their heads temporarily. temporarily. But, you know, last week was supposed to be when that infrastructure plan was voted on. Um, we know that the speaker has pushed that out. And I think that there's a real feeling of momentum on the progressive side that they're going to get something done. But it does seem like what that is. is a little Yeah, bit. it does. But they are making progress. It seems like Manchin put a number out there and they're sort of talking about that. And, you know, I wonder I do wonder if Kristen Cinema is feeling the pressure from donors and also from, you know, talk of having uh, a robust primary uh, of her. She's 
hopefully, I would think, from a Democrat perspective, paying attention to that. But uh, we'll see. I mean, it does, it, you know, Nancy Pelosi is a smart strategist, as we all know, and she never puts anything up for vote till she has the vote. So, uh, and she's in Rome, we should say, today. So she's not too worried. She's there eating, you know, pasta and uh, all those other great things Scott's you do Scott's guessing. Rome. He doesn't actually have <laughs> yeah. the speaker's flight itinerary. Um, and we should say, we will be sitting down with her in less than a week's time uh, for one of our first events at KQED's new uh, Space the Commons. That will be live streamed. If folks want to check it out, they can get information at kqed.org. And that's next Wednesday. So maybe she knows something we don't know about the timeline. I'm also talking to Representative Adam Schiff in person on Thursday. So clearly they're Yeah, we were all waiting for them to to cancel, but that doesn't look like it's going to happen. So and that brings up another topic, which last one of the last times we talked to the speaker, she was not happy with Facebook. Uh, They had posted and of course it was shared many times a viral video uh, that made her appear to be drunk. And uh, she was not happy happy about it. She said that they uh, were not some victim of Russian hacking, that they were uh, you know, putting up something they knew was false. And there's a lot of talk this week with the whistleblower about regulation and whether even to break uh, break it up into smaller companies. Um, I'm not sure that'll happen, but definitely there seems to be a bipartisan consensus that something needs to be done. Yeah, I mean, there was a real difference in tone this week at this hearing with that whistleblower, Francis Haugen, um, where, you know, before it seemed very politicized, Republicans were complaining that right-wing voices were being stifled, very sort of obsessed with their own post and their own followers. And this one was really more about the kind of bird's eye view. You know, what are the algorithms pushing? What does Facebook know about the potential harm of those algorithms and the content that it is sort of pushing up? And what this whistleblower pointed out, which is that they also know that changing that will cut into their bottom line. Um, And so we saw a rare sort of bipartisan moment there on that committee. And I do think it speaks to the sort of evolution around this issue. I mean, this is not, I, I think for a lot of senators, been an easy area to kind of understand. It's complicated, it's new, and it is not something that we have historically regulated. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also, you know, the, one of the memos uh, that was revealed by the whistleblower talked about the impact that they knew Instagram was having on young girls, their body image, uh, thoughts of suicide, and yet they still tried to get permission to do, like, uh, Instagram for kids. I mean, that really shows, I think, chutzpah and a complete disregard for uh, right. the well-being of people. Now and, the question is, what actually happens? And with all the other things we talked about, are they going to be able to come together uh, and make a, you know, and make a deal, essentially? Um, we should also mention the Pelosi thing. It's going to be on Political Breakdown that yes, next week. Next that week is our show Breakdown. next week, so don't miss it. We will uh, you probably can ask her about both. that, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, one other thing to talk about, and, you know, we keep hoping to get beyond the pandemic. It's still very much with us. But there is some light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, the governor last week calling for uh, a, a mandate for school kids that'll be rolled out starting next year when uh, the FDA gives final approval. Young kids are maybe getting vaccinated soon. Pfizer is asking for permission. Um, we've got L.A. meantime sort of uh, tightening the screws and requiring uh, vaccination proof if you want to go into, say, a Lakers game or something like that. And so it does seem like the, you know, proponents of uh, stricter mandates and masking, whatever it might be, they're really feeling empowered, uh, like they, they've got the cards. Yeah, I mean, I think the recall kind of showed that. And what we're seeing in L.A. is beyond just the county mandate for those big events, you know, the L.A. City Council saying, you know, in this city, if you're going to a small restaurant, a gym, you need to be vaccinated. Um, in the Bay Area, we're actually seeing momentum uh, in the direction of dropping mass requirements for the vaccinated because our rates are so low and our vax rates are high enough. Um, that's not going to go as far as some people would like. But yeah. starting October 15th in San Francisco, you 
you can uh, drop that mask yeah. in some places. Well, and I think it's also a, a sort of recognizing reality, which is people are tired of masks. So, all right, we're going to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to be joined by former state Senator Hannah Beth Jackson. She's a Democrat from the Central Coast. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with my partner in crime, Marisa Lagos. And our guest today is a Democrat from the Central Coast, Hannah Beth Jackson, represented Santa Barbara and a lot of Ventura County in the state legislature for 14 years, first in the Assembly and then in the Senate before she was termed out last year. Hannah Beth Jackson, welcome to Political Breakdown. Well, I'm delighted to be with you, and thanks for having me. Yeah, well, let's talk about what's been in the news for the past week, because it is relevant in your part of the state, and that is the oil spill down in Orange County, just off the coast. I mean, it's been 52 years since a terrible oil spill really changed the thinking about the environment and the coast and offshore oil drilling uh, off the coast of Santa Barbara. What are your thoughts uh, this week as we're dealing with this again? Much smaller scale, fortunately, but nonetheless, it's here. Well, of course, we had a, uh, a spill similar to this one uh, in 2000, uh, 2015. And uh, in May, uh, there was a spill on shore that leaked to, uh, into our ocean waters and uh, created a spill of about 122,000 uh, gallons which uh, is a tiny bit smaller than what we're seeing uh, down in uh, Orange County, but very similar to the extent that these these spills are really quite devastating to marine life, uh, and they have a tremendous impact on the economy. And they're they're just a a reminder that oil is a dirty business. And regardless of whether it was the oil breaking on its own, which frankly was what happened up in Santa Barbara, you know, they corrode. They're in salt water. They're way over their lifespan and expectancy. They haven't been particularly well taken care of. Uh, And uh, whether it's that or a, a ship bumping into the oil uh, pipelines itself, you know, there's this huge infrastructure in our ocean of oil production. And the question is, why is it still there? And as long as it's still there, it's going to present the threat of spills that are going to have these devastating impacts on both the marine life and our economy. 
I mean, listening to you there, obviously, I think if you could wave a wand, you would just do away with oil and gas drilling offshore of California. Uh, As we know, that's easier said than done because the federal government controls so much of that area. I mean, you chipped away at this or tried to through a series of bills over your years in Sacramento. Um, One of them, signed by former Governor Brown in 2018, blocks new oil and gas infrastructure in state waters. Explain what that did. And, And is that the kind of, I mean, sort of creative thinking you think the state needs to be doing if the federal government won't, you know, eliminate this entirely? Well, the state has jurisdiction over oil drilling up to three miles out. That is state, those are state waters. Between three nautical and 12 nautical miles, the federal government has exclusive jurisdiction. So what happened is Donald Trump announced that he was going to open up federal waters to to more oil drilling, uh, something that we as a state couldn't impact. But what we could do and what my legislation did do is it prohibited the state from expanding or creating new any new infrastructure to accommodate any expanded drilling off the coast, effectively shutting off the state and essentially shutting off the ability uh, of the government to grant new leases that would prove profitable to the oil industry. Because the truth is that they're in this for the money. And if it doesn't pencil out, they're not going to drill. And that was one way to keep it from penciling out. And of course, there are other things that we've tried to do uh, in state waters to protect the, the pipeline structure, to make sure that the pipelines, which we discovered again in 2015, uh, were not being well cared for by these Texas companies uh, who, did, who refused to spend even a small amount of money to give early warnings and shut, shut off valves to oil that may spill because of a pipeline rupture, which is exactly what happened, uh, whatever the cause, in uh, Orange County. And it took them hours before either they identified or shut down the oil spill. That didn't have to happen. That's the kind of thing technology today and legislation that I did and my colleagues uh, in the Santa Barbara, we got together and said, look, we have got to do everything we can. We can't stop the drilling, uh, you know, as much as we would like to just uh, cold, uh, basically, you know, cold, uh, cock the industry, if you will, uh, because there there are a lot of considerations. There well, are contractual. Let's, let's, let me ask you about that, because obviously the the fossil fuel industry, I'm sure, opposed the bills that Marisa alluded to a moment ago. There was another bill that uh, w- required uh, you know mandatory pipeline inspections, and as you said, shortening the response time to oil spills. Um, what kind of opposition did you face uh, on those bills from the industry, and how effective are they at, at lobbying? Well, they are and have been for years among the largest industries in the country. Uh, They have been very active politically. They have for decades had uh, sort of uh, access to the inner sanctum of the White House, from Donald Trump to George W. Bush uh, to uh, to, uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson back in the 60s. He was a Texas oil man. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they have been able to really manipulate and to control a lot of the legislation, uh, which has been a real challenge. They do the same in California. They're an industry that has provided a lot of jobs. They're an industry because of taxes uh, that have basically caused our addiction economically to oil. And so we need to wean ourselves off uh, in such a way that we can replace it. Uh, 
but that we also recognize in addition to replacing that form of fuel, uh, that we also need to create new jobs, retrain people and find other ways to bolster our economy, all of which are doable. Uh, but it's very tough. You know, change doesn't happen easily. Well, let's talk about that, because this is a state controlled by Democrats. Newsom just came out very sort of successfully out of this recall attempt. We have uh, a legislature with a two thirds, you know, or more Democratic majority. This is not just a partisan issue here in California. And I'm wondering how you see the politics among the left. I mean, this is something that you had to really go to bat with your fellow Democrats on, right? Oh, without a question. Well, it, you know, Democrats are not a unified voice. We have our progressive wing, uh, which has a very strong focus on environmental protections, uh, social justice issues and what have you. And then there's a what they call the moderate wing, which is much more business driven. And frankly, because of the way we now have those top two primaries, what happens is the most conservative Democrat gets supported uh, with lots of money and resources by the business community. So there's really a breakdown. The, the party is not uh, uniform by any stretch of the imagination. What did you have well, success with, though? Like, was there a way that you were able to bring anyone over to your side on this who was getting those campaign contributions? Well, fortunately, uh, there is 1,100 miles of coastline in California, and virtually all of the coastal representatives understood uh, the dangers and the impacts that these oil spills have on their communities uh, and their economies. So, for example, we had tar balls from the Santa Barbara spill in 2015 that showed up all the way down into Huntington Beach, 110, 120 miles away. Uh, it's all interconnected. Our fishing industry, a uh, critical component to our economy, was impacted. Certainly, our um, tourist industry, a very, very big part of California, was negatively impacted. And so there was that interconnectedness, and we were able to get enough of our colleagues uh, who have that investment uh, with their constituents in making sure that our coastal waters are as clean and as pristine as we can possibly make them, who came together. And sadly, sometimes it takes these kinds of horrific disasters uh, to get people back on the same page, recognizing the dangers associated with oil and oil drilling, as well as oil consumption. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and our guest today is former State Senator Hannah Beth Jackson. She's a Central Coast Democrat who represented Santa Barbara and Ventura counties in the state legislature for 14 years. And, you know, just to the south of you, there's going to be a very couple of very competitive congressional races in Orange County uh, where the spill occurred. A couple of seats that flipped from red to blue and back to red again. Uh, and of course, the Republicans, very much the drill baby drill, pro-drilling, pro-oil industry party. What impact do you think this could have, if any, on the midterm elections in places like Orange County? Well, certainly, you know, people enjoy the coast, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. And when you go to the coast and you see these birds covered with oil or dead fish on the shores, uh, people who own uh, 
uh, marine vessels who can't go out into the water to enjoy a weekend or to take a trip or just to, to sit on their boats and enjoy a beautiful day. Uh, it has that immediate impact. And I would say that uh, it could and very likely will have uh, an impact in these elections. Sometimes life has to kind of hit you in the face. Uh, and in this instance, for the people down in Orange County, this has been a very, very uh, clear uh, and dramatic impact on their lives. And it's got some of those freshman Republicans playing defense a little bit, too. Well, some some of them are starting to talk like they care about the environment, but you got to scratch deeply because the question isn't the, well, do you care? It's what are you going to do about it? And that's really where uh, this all push comes to shove, if you will. We've got to start making some changes. We've got to wean ourselves off of this oil uh, and do it in ways where we encourage and promote and start using uh, cleaner, uh, more sustainable, more renewable, safer sources of energy. All right. We want to talk about all of your incredible work around workplace uh, boardroom diversity. But before we do, stay with us as as pundit for a second. What do you think of this vaccine mandate that the governor rolled out last week? Education has been another area I know you were very interested in. Um, Is that something that you think... I, I don't know, not just politically, but, you know, this whole pandemic has been so divisive. And I'm just curious if you think that that was the right move and, and how it might play out in the coming weeks and months. I'm sorry, which... which uh, uh, The vaccine mandate for school children. You know, um, I'm one of these folks who remembers back to the day when polio was attacking our youth in particular, uh, when people could get the measles and the mumps and chicken pox. And these were all very... Uh, significant kinds of illnesses that we have been able to virtually eradicate because of vaccines. So I believe in them. And as someone who actually uh, had the measles and the mumps before the vaccines came out, I am a strong supporter of this kind of approach to public health. And with a condition uh, like the the, uh, potential death impacts and mortality, morbidity uh, of COVID, uh, I strongly support these Uh, efforts and believe that we really do need to consider public health and the public welfare. It's one of the responsibilities of government is to protect the public health and welfare. So I'm I'm a supporter. Yeah, we do want to talk with you about some of the uh, work you did on uh, gender diversity, equal pay. But let's go back a bit to when you were a girl growing up in Boston. Uh, There was a little league that you wanted to join and you weren't allowed. Talk about that and, you know, what how, how you dealt with it and what impact that had on you. Well, you know, I came from a family um, that had um, uh, immigrated from Eastern Europe uh, one or two generations before and loved this country so dearly and deeply and believed and taught us that in America, if you worked hard, played by the rules and did your best, you could do or be anything. And when I was seven years old and I was a really good little baseball player, I went out to try for Little League and discovered that wasn't necessarily true because girls were not allowed to play Little League. It had nothing to do with my skills or my qualifications. It had to do with the fact that girls were prohibited from playing the sport. Uh, It created great indignity for me, and it's something I never forgot. So it's been sort of um, a motivator for me throughout my life is this whole issue that people really should be judged uh, by the content of their character and allowed to be as successful as they can be in order to live the great American promise and the American dream. 
I mean, it's interesting you say that because critics of some of the laws you pushed around gender uh, equity have said the same thing, that we shouldn't be mandating a number of women or people of color or LGBT people on boards. We should just let, you know, people show that they're worthy and then that will happen organically. So how did you thread that and talk a little bit about that law in specific, um, which which really required this, you know, seating of more people, more diversity on boards. And how do you respond to that argument? Yeah, well, um, you know, that that's all great in theory. But the reality has been that it doesn't happen organically, that there is bias and prejudice uh, that has uh, really dominated in this country, whether it's gender or racial. So this legislation really started off as a request. Back in 2013, I did a resolution that urged companies to add more women to their corporate boards. The data showed uh, these were studies done by McKenzie studies done by Merrill Lynch, Credit Suisse, and and all sorts of really business-focused entities that demonstrated if you had women in a critical mass on your boards, companies were more productive, far more profitable, far greater governance, uh, more transparent, greater accountability. They just did better. And so in 2013, I brought this resolution. At the time, women held about 15.5% of all uh, board seats uh, in California for publicly traded companies. Fast forward to 2018, and by the way, the resolution passed, but it has no, they, they have no teeth. It was just a request, an urging, take a look at these studies and add more women. In 2018, when we looked to see how well we had done, we had moved the needle from 15.5% to 16%. That was it. And so it was very clear that asking and suggesting and urging was just not going to get us there. And so this bill uh, has actually had quite a substantial uh, and positive impact. We still have a long way to go. Uh, But by requiring that boards add women uh, so that they better reflect the society in which we live. Women represent 52% of the population in the state of California, 47% of our workforce. Adding that perspective is a benefit to corporations. We know that, and we need to see it happening. Well, and that that uh, activity, as well as the equal pay law, have had uh, you know a big impact across the country. In fact, I think the Nasdaq Exchange uh, just recently said they're going to require nearly all of more than three thousand companies listed there to have at least one woman, one person of color, or an LGBT board member. And if they don't, to explain why, I want to hear that explanation. Um, but what do you what do you make of that? I mean, it it, it does and, seem like things that you know start in California sometimes are seen as a little out there. But then you know, okay, I got to throw one more stat in here too, Scott. Women now control more than a quarter of corporate board seats nationwide, fifty percent more than they did before that law passed. So that's that's progress. an impact. Sorry to cut you off. That was a, <laughs> that was an exciting statistic to me. I mean, it does show that things are moving. Well, and and once we add women to boards, and we're hearing this more and more anecdotally, but we're hopefully pulled together the information, boards, particularly men on boards, are conceding that adding women has really helped the discussion, uh, the perspective, uh, and the ultimate productivity of their companies. It's just that we, we've had to re- require this. We have had to say, you must do this in order to get to those levels of parity uh, that w- we all believe are appropriate. It's just how we've gotten there. So it's really been a, a, a battle. Uh, and 
and will continue to be. We're not a parity yet. And certainly people of color um, are very poorly represented on these boards. But if we can continue moving in that direction, we're going to see a lot better uh, results. In California, you know, it was our late great uh, historian, uh, Kevin Starr, who was the historian of California for decades, said California is the state that invents the future. Yeah. Gavin Newsom likes to say we're the coming attractions for the rest of the country. Let me ask you, 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 um, you, you're obviously a very productive legislator up in Sacramento, and you once said that you need to be extremely clever to be a legislator. Do you remember what you meant by that? Or, you know, just even taking it apart from the quote, like, like, how do you, how do you, how do you, what, what does it take in Sacramento to be successful? Well, I think, first of all, you have to listen to all perspectives. Um, and what I liked to do was to bring all points of view to the table, let them know what I wanted to achieve, what my goal was, and then ask them to help me get there in a way that was supportive of what their needs were. So a lot of it, uh, the devil's in the details, as they say. You know, my goal, uh, for example, was equal pay. Uh, women deserve to be paid equally for doing substantially similar work. And I remember sitting down with the Chamber of Commerce and saying, you, you, you have to support this. Yes, we do. Yes. So how do we get there in a way that you can be supportive? And one of the things they said, for example, was for years, we used to talk about equal pay for comparable work comparable. They didn't like the word comparable. So I said, give me a better word. They said, what about if we use the word substantially similar? Well, I'm a lawyer by profession. Words matter. And I took a look at the word comparable versus substantially similar. I couldn't see any difference. I said, that's fine. Let's use substantially similar. Apparently, there was it sort of stuck in the craw of the business world to say comparable. So we, we Remove that word, we replaced it with substantially similar. And by the time we got done negotiating that bill, we had the support of the chamber and the bill passed with almost unanimous support. And that was, I remember, a debate between, yeah, is a janitor and a maid the same thing? Probably. Um, all right. Before we go, uh, we like to end on a fun note. It is baseball playoff time. Folks in both L.A. and San Francisco are celebrating right now. But you are a Bostontonian. Uh, who are you rooting for? Well, you know, I am a, a Bostonian, and since I don't have to run for re-election, I'll be very honest with you. You know, once a Red Sox fan, always a Red Sox. <laughs> we thought so. You if it's might the Red Sox and the Dodgers, you're going to be with the Red Sox. Uh, you know, that would be a great World Series. I have to think about that. Why are you but putting the I Dodgers to, in there? Well, or, you know, because you're not her part of the state. You know, no, I'm a, I loved Will. I loved Willie Mays. <laughs> Who didn't? See, All right, like, we're going to leave it right there. Let's <laughs> leave it there. <laughs> Hannah Beth Jackson, thank you so much for joining us. Love and that's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Chris Hoff. I am Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at M Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Even the governor today said beat L.A., well, right? You know, I he mean, said it's great San that L.A. Francisco. and San, uh, San Fran are in it, but I'm, I'm for the Giants. All right. Thanks so much for listening. And uh, I don't know. Cheer for your team. Do you 
love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area, its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures, then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.